Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. It's good to see you today. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. Um, we have been looking a good deal at Acts chapter 2, and we just have two messages left in that particular passage this week, which is going to talk about the church with attitude. And then next week, we'll be looking at the idea of worship, the worshiping church. And uh, then it'll be Labor Day weekend, and boy, we'll be into the fall and homecoming weekend and celebrations uh, for us as a church family. And I hope you are beginning to uh, reorient your life and schedule to include all the activities and events in church. If you haven't met Michelle Gaddy, we certainly want to add her to all of our prayer lists as we pray for our staff now that she is uh, the minister to um, our children. What an exciting addition that is. Don't forget to pray, too, for our senior adult minister search. Uh, Richard is leading that, and we certainly want to encourage uh, that ministry dynamic within our church uh, life as well. You know, that's one of the unique things about Palmetto is we have young, we have old, we have everything in between, and uh, great diversity in God's family. And that's a beautiful thing because we're better together than we are apart. So let me encourage you to uh, be praying for the staff, praying for the pastor search process. The pastor search committee meets again tomorrow at 530 uh, I'll be meeting with the staff tomorrow in our regular Monday meeting and then 5.30 tomorrow meeting with our pastor search committee. If you weren't here for the uh, church family conference, also just a little bit of an update that they gave. They're, they'll be back in front of you soon with the survey. And remember, the survey is about us as a congregation uh, for the most part and then some aspects of what we'll be asking about the pastor because remember, as we said last week, it is more important who we are and our collective congregational culture uh, than just the person that stands on the stage long-term leading you all as a church family because it certainly takes the dynamic of a pastor and people sharing life and ministry together for a church to experience the very best of what God wants. And that really brings us to this passage of Scripture today that I want to focus on really three phrases within Acts 2, 42 through 47 where it talks to us about the attitudes that should be present within the congregation. Now, we, we looked at seven different actions within the previous messages on this passage. We've looked at worship and evangelism and discipleship and ministry and fellowship and prayer and stewardship. And then there are three things left related to attitude that it describes. And, and honestly, it gets at the culture of the congregation. When the congregation embodies the, these attitudes, the Spirit of God can live and dwell and work within the church. But when the church doesn't have these attitudes, the, the church begins to dry up and the church struggles spiritually and the church looks inwardly and becomes self-reliant and these kinds of things. And so, Today's uh, sermon really focuses upon the attitudes uh, that the church should have. Uh, a man by the name of Clement Stone is a well-known Christian philanthropist. He, he said this, he said, there is a little difference in people, but that little difference makes a big difference. The little difference that makes the big difference. And it's our attitude. It's the attitude, whether we're positive or negative, hopeful and with a future orientation and a belief about what God wants to do and 
how God wants to work. And I, I don't know where you work or where you live or what your uh, educational involvement may be, but whether it's in home or with children or parents or grandparents or with family or employees or church members or uh, community leaders, listen, attitude is everything. If you have a positive attitude, boy, you're known for it. If you have a negative, cynical, critical attitude, you're known for that too. You know, one famous pastor, Chuck Swindoll, who was known for talking on this topic fairly regularly, uh, wrote these words. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact that attitude has on life. Attitude is more than facts. It is more important than the past, more important than education, than money, circumstances, more important than failures and successes. It's more important than what people say or do. It will make or break a company, make or break a church, make or break a home, make or break a marriage, make or break your life. Attitude is significant. You see, you can't change the past. You're not in control of the future, but you do have this moment and how you approach life in this moment is so very important. And we see examples of not only individual people and their attitude within the Bible, but we see churches and their collective attitudes brought together to build a culture of a church. For instance, the church at Philippi, that's, their stories written into the book of Acts we'll look at later uh, in the months to come. We'll see the story of Philippi. They were the joyful church, a small church, poor church, remote church, and yet they had this really optimistic, hopeful attitude about what God was doing. The Corinthian church, very inward-focused church, wealthy church, at the crossroads and intersections of the main roads of Europe in those days and times, and yet they had a negative, cynical, critical attitude. And the contrast in the two churches was evident and on display and still is a testimony today. You see, we may not realize it, but people are looking not only at our individual attitudes, but within the church, looking at the collective attitude of the church. Tom Rainer, uh, in his book, I Am Church Member, said that churches today, because of circumstances, situations, and cultures, are dealing with the issue of congregational attitude. And he writes this in his book, about two-thirds of the builder generation is Christian. That's the older generation. But only about 15% of millennials are Christian. He said, we can blame the low percentage of Christians in the next generation on secular culture, godless politics, or even hypocritical members or uncaring pastors. But I want to propose to you that church members may need to look in the mirror too. I'm suggesting that congregations across America might be weak because many of us church members have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We join churches expecting others to serve, others to feed, others to care, others to give. We don't like hypocrites in the church, but we fail to see our own hypocrisies and our own attitudes. You know, when we deal with attitudes, it's one of those things where we've got to look inward, don't we? Because we can't look at someone else and judge their motives and their methods and their approaches, but we, we look at ourselves and say, okay, where's my attitude? Now, let me extend the introduction to the sermon a little bit further by uh, looking at the word attitude in the Bible. In the New International Version of the Bible, attitude appears four times. Same thing in the New American Standard Version of the Bible, four times. Four times the Bible talks to us about attitude. The, the first is in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22 where he says, you were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, 
and to put on a new attitude in your mind, to, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Now, just think about that, to put off the old, to put on the new, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. In other words, God is wanting to work a new attitude into our heart and life, and hopefully on the day of our salvation, that new attitude began to be worked. But if we're like most people, the longer we live, the more challenges we see, the more obstacles we have to overcome, and it's easy to become cynical, critical, and negative as opposed to hopeful, optimistic, and loving in our attitude. As a matter of fact, there's a movement in the evangelical church that says we are becoming more cynical, more negative, and more critical. We don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be a part of those that live with that negative, critical, cynical attitude about church, about church life, about the gospel, about the work of salvation, about God changing the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls. No, no, no. We want to believe that the old can be set aside and the new can be brought about, that there's this hopeful, optimistic belief by faith that God is doing His work and accomplishing His plans. The second verse of Scripture that uses the word attitude in the New Testament is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible. The Bible says your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Now, that's quite a challenge, isn't it? To say, hey, God wants you to have the same attitude that Jesus had. And so we read in the stories of Scripture, we read in Jesus' encounters with people, we read in His teaching we learn what his attitude was. His attitude was one that said, I want to glorify God. I want to live for God's purposes. I want to obey the Lord. I want to do what the Father sent me to do. And we see that humble submission as he lives the life of a servant. He took on the role of a servant and said, hey, I am going to live this kind of life. And he challenges us to have that same attitude. Peter gets in on this conversation in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, where he's a little more Uh, militant in his language as he talks to us about the softening and submission of our heart. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with his same attitude because he who suffered in the body is done with sin. He said, in other words, if you want to win the battle of sin, if you want to win the victory that Jesus won, arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. And you can just go back and read things like the Beatitudes and see exactly what the attitude of Jesus was, humble and lowly and meek and this servant that he became for the sake of other people. He surrendered himself to God in order to serve mankind. The final word comes to us from Hebrews. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the Bible tells us what the most powerful tool is in having our attitude oriented towards what God wants that attitude to be. And it's nothing other than the Bible, the very thing that we're looking at and studying today. The Bible says about the Bible, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In other words, the Bible searches our attitudes. It searches out what our attitude really is. It searches out those deep and complex things in our life when we try to rationalize or justify or demonstrate some sort of thought about ourselves. It tells us when we're wrong and it tells us when we're right. In other words, it really searches out things like pride and fear and inferiority and rebellion and that entitlement, 
and self-righteousness and legalism, all of those attitudes that can begin to make us live and play out our daily lives in ways that God doesn't want us to live and play out our daily lives. It searches those things and it collects God's attention upon our attitude and, and then it measures it and it weighs it. Now, what we want to do today is now go understanding a larger context of how the Bible speaks about attitude and look at the attitude of the early church. And oh, it was a good attitude. It was the kind of attitude that a pastor would love to get in front of a church like that and lead them forward. Because you see, they, they had an attitude of gratitude. They had a, an attitude of willing to follow. They had an attitude of looking to God. They had an attitude that was others-oriented, not self-oriented. And as we look at this church, we're going to learn what attitudes Palmetto Church needs to have as it lives out in faith and obedience what God has called it to do as well. Join me in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and let's read this passage. You follow along as I read it out loud. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, just key in on a few verses. Let me highlight it for you. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice awe, wonders, and signs. And then look down in verse 46 with glad and generous hearts. And then in verse 47, having favor with all people. It, we see how Luke is capturing not just the actions of the early church, but the attitudes. And can I tell you, that's really, really important. I, I've noticed in churches today, as we work with churches across North America, that many churches know what to do, but they've forgotten why they do it. And when you forget why you do it, what happens is your heart drifts from the Lord. The Bible says, oftentimes, these people are near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, when we're doing the things and going through the motions, but we don't remember why, the heart can be disconnected as the body is involved in the activity. But you see, in Christianity, it's so unique to our faith. It's not a ritualistic religion it's a relationship with God experience. And so whenever the heart is disengaged and disconnected, oh, bad things, very bad things happen. Oh, but I'm still going through the motions. Yeah, but your heart is disconnected. It, it's one of the most dangerous aspects of our Christian faith to have all of the activities and none of the heart's engagement. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Jesus confronted those in the Bible most harshly who were like that, the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, they did all the motions. But Jesus said this to them, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall surely not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And everybody thought, well, how can our righteousness surpass the scribes and the Pharisees? All they do is devote themselves to the rituals of religion. But Jesus wasn't talking about more righteousness. 
He was talking about a different kind of righteousness. He said it's got to be a righteousness that comes from the heart. It's got to be one that affects your attitudes, your beliefs, your dispositions. It's got to be your heart that is engaged. And the early church had its heart engaged. Now, I don't know if it was because of the proximity to the resurrection of Jesus and they just naturally had this beautiful dynamic and today we're just so far from it. But I can tell you that the North American church seems to be long in its shadows towards having its heart engaged. But here's the deal. The churches that do have its heart engaged, that do have the attitude of Christ Jesus, those are the churches that God is supernaturally visiting, blessing, and using. And notice the three things. Uh, the first related to our attitude is to look up and be inspired. You see, what we need to know about this early church was they looked up and saw God and they were inspired. They saw God in worship. They saw God at work. And it was an inspiring thing for them. And so they lived like a church that was truly inspired. They lived like a church that really believed God could work. There in verse 43, we see the words awe. We see the words wonder, wonders. We see the words signs. Three very important words to understand. They had a sense of awe. Awe literally means a sense of holiness that brings fear. It's the idea of reverence. It it was a sense that the divine was present with us and that this is his work. Therefore, we're not just going through the motions. This is God Almighty's activity. And, And listen, you don't have to read the scripture very much to know that whenever God is present, it is an awesome experience, whether it's Moses on the mountaintop at the burning bush, or whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or whether it's Peter, James, and Paul up on the Mount of Transfiguration. When God's present, it's an overwhelming thing. And the Bible says there's another presence that we're going to experience. Revelation 1 tells us what that's going to be like when we're in heaven and we see the holiness of God. We will fall at his feet as if dead because of the sheer overwhelming nature of God. The early church looked up in its worship, and we'll look at that next week. Very important message about what happens in the church's worship experience. But they looked up and they were inspired because there was a sense of awe about God. There should be that kind of sense of awe in our life that shifts our attitude to one of submission and thankfulness and gratitude. Notice the other word, the word wonders. It was the amazing activities that God was doing. There was a sense that God was doing amazing things within the church. And the amazing things primarily were life transformation. People were having their lives shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. People were coming out of sin and into relationship with God. And that relationship with God, they had a shift in their behavior and a shift in their character. They had a shift in the way they talked and the way they lived and the priorities they established. There there was a sense that God was active in the church. God was meeting needs in the community. God was blessing families. God was building back marriages. God was doing great works. And, And the final word is the word signs. It was the work of God miracles that pointed people to Jesus because the work that God does isn't done 
for our aggrandizement. No, no, no. We are submissive to the Lord. It is done so that Jesus may be magnified. It's miracles with a meaning, if you will. And all of these things said that the church looked up to God and just saw God for who He was and what He was doing, and they were absolutely overwhelmed by it. And so their heart was one of constant worship. That worship is such an important thing within a church ministry to have an attitude of worshiping the Lord because of who He is and the work that He is doing. And we should be inspired. I mean, we should be a church that is able to identify the work of God and, and see that work of God when it's going on. We're not just going through the motions, but we are engaged with God to such a degree that we identify the activity that the Lord is doing. We identify how He's moving, where He's working, the resources He's providing, the activity of transformation that is occurring, the, the work of salvation that is happening in the community. We should be a church that sees stories of life transformation. When God is at work in people's lives, we should be able to see it and testify to it. And and when that attitude is present, then the people of God are seeing God at work and recognize that what they're a part of is more than just a collection of people and the collective activities and identities, but it now is the people surrendered to God and the collective work of God through the power of His Holy Spirit. There's a second thing that we ought to see in this as well. It's not only to look up and be inspired, it's to look in and to be enthusiastic and excited about what God was doing. The early church was enthusiastic as they looked inward. They they looked inward and there was an enthusiastic response to God. You know, there are a lot of Christians that have lost their ability to respond. I remember it was a Sunday night in church, probably back in about 1989, when I got out of the pew of a church on a Sunday night and just came to an altar and bowed my head. And and the only reason I came to the altar was because I knew God was working in my life, but I didn't fully understand what it was. So I came to the altar that night because I wanted to have a responsive heart to God. And and can I tell you, that's one of the things that I think God has used most in my spiritual journey is that whenever I sensed God at work, I may not in that moment have fully understood it, but I always wanted to say yes to God even as I was searching out what it was God was doing. You see, when you have a responsive heart to God, God isn't going to let you miss His will, His plan, His activity. When your heart is saying, yes, God, I want to follow you. Yes, God, I want to understand. Yes, God, I want to go where you want me to go. Yes, God, I want to obey what what you're saying. When you have that disposition inwardly in your heart and spirit that enthusiastically says, I want to obey God, it is a powerful tool that God uses. Here were the inward attitudes that the church displayed according to uh, chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. They had a thankful heart, they were glad, they were generous, and they were praising God. They were thankful in their heart for all that God had given, all that God was doing. They rejoiced when they saw God at work, they joyfully worshiped the Lord and said, thank you, God, and identified God's work and activity. They were generous. They contributed to it. They not only gave their lives to it, but they gave their resources to it. And finally, it became about worship. They were reciting the wonderful works of God one to another. 
Now, what might that look like at Palmetto Baptist Church? If Palmetto looked inward and were enthusiastic and we mirrored the early church, what would it look like? Well, it would look first and foremost like Palmetto was a thankful church, that we were as thankful in all circumstances. Notice how the Bible says it in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. Let me read this verse for you. Beginning in verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord within your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? Always for everything. You know, when, when Palmetto Baptist Church is a thankful church, always and for everything, for our history, for our resources, for our people, for our leaders, for the clarity of our mission, for the activities that we're a part of. What a powerful thing it is to be thankful in that kind of way. That permeates a church's attitude. Uh, Also, secondly, to use the same word again, that the church would be a joyful church. It, It would be like in Proverbs chapter 17, Verse 22, when the Bible says the joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It's that joyful heart that is just medicine to the soul of people. Where people would say, I want to be in church. I, I want to be where I'm lifted up. I want to be with believers who love me passionately. I want to be where the Spirit of God is anointing the work and the activity of God. It would be that joyful church that says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Just that positive, hope-filled, faith-oriented church body that sees and believes and knows what the power of the God at work really looks like. Thirdly, if we apply the other word, the third word of the early church to us, Palmetto Baptist Church would be a generous church. Like we talked about last week, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God. That's verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 9 that we looked at last week. And again, you see the comprehensive language, every way, every person enriched in every sort of thing. It's such a comprehensive thing when our attitude is such that, that it is oriented towards Christ. The final thing is that we'd be a praising church like the early church. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 identifies this comprehensive, saturating activity of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, when the attitude is right, then boy, the the perpetuating work of God is active within the church. Uh, One of my favorite and most faith-oriented spiritual people that I've ever known was a guy by the name of Zig Ziglar, uh, famous in our Southern Baptist circles. He was a Sunday school teacher for decades at First Baptist Church of Dallas and while being a seminary student there, it was a joy just to be able to rub shoulders with him periodically and then later read many of his books. His most famous book, See You at the Top, just permeates with his life in Christ and his hope-filled <clears throat> orientation. He loved to tell a story about the little bag boy in Yazoo, Mississippi, where he grew up. A lot of people think that he was probably that little bag boy in Yazoo, Mississippi, when two grocers met out on the 
sidewalk, one competing grocer on one side of the uh, street, the other competing grocer across the street, and the two met out one day and began to talk about this little bag boy. And one of the grocers who didn't employ this little boy said to the grocer who did employ this little boy, it's going to be wonderful to see little Johnny get a raise because he certainly do it. And and the man that he worked for said, well, how do you know little Johnny's going to get a raise? He said, well, either you're going to give it to him or I'm going to hire him away from you by giving him more money because that's the most positive, helpful, hopeful kid that we have in this entire city. And so the idea is, boy, people are attracted to the beauty of hope and joy. You see, the Bible says that it's that sort of spirit that is contagious. And it's not birthed from within ourselves. It's the work of the Spirit of God. The Bible says that these people in the early church had the Spirit of God at work within them and that they were alive and that the Spirit of God was filling and flooding their hearts and they couldn't help it in everything they did. In their Sunday school fellowship and house-to-house meetings, it just showed. When it came time to give the offering, they were excited to give. When they got on their knees and prayed, oh, the Spirit's attitude of joy and hope and faith poured out of their hearts. When the pastor was preaching, the apostles were preaching, they couldn't contain themselves as they were listening to the Word of God. When, when it came time to, to meet together in, in houses, their fellowship and relationships were authentic and sincere. You could feel it in every aspect of the church's life. Listen, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of the people of God in His church with this type of work, when we look up, we see God and we're inspired. And when we look in, there is an encouraging spirit that is enthusiastically driving us forward. But here's the final thing that it does. It helps us to look out, to look out there into the community, and it inspires people and influences them. Here's a beautiful word, this word, influence. It's the foundation of everything that Jesus did. Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. He never used control techniques. He never strong-armed anybody, but he always invited people and sought to influence people by who he was what he did, what he taught, how he lived, how he died, and how he rose again. And the Bible says the early church caught that attitude. Verse 47, having favor with all people. You know, our Christian faith has always been a relational faith, hasn't it? It's a difference between Christianity and all other world religions. All other world religions are about rituals and activities But the Christian faith is not about rituals. As a matter of fact, Jesus again cautioned those who were engaged in ritualistic activities saying that you were missing the kingdom of God. It's always been about having a right relationship with God first and then with one another. It's taught to us through Jesus' entire life. It tells us in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 that Jesus grew in stature and in favor with both God and men. When Jesus was confronted by the lawyers of the day and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And and so the idea is that, that Jesus understood that very framework and the early church recognized the favor of God in the activity that they were seeing, but they also recognized that they had favor with people. Now, favor with God is a very special thing. You can read about it in Noah as he was favored by God and Abraham and 
a woman by the name of Hannah and Samuel, and we just read forward in the stories of the Bible and just see those people who were blessed by the favor of God. And they would call out to God in the phrase of the Apostle Paul, Abba, Father. They, they recognized that the relationship with God was established through Jesus Christ. But if it was established with God through Jesus, it was extended to the people that they interacted with that there was just a sense of blessing and anointing upon their life. One of my namesakes in the Bible, being named, my middle name Joseph, is Joseph. And Joseph from the Old Testament is one of the most appealing characters despite all of his suffering and all of his personal pride and ambition. But the Bible says despite his struggle with sin that he was highly favored by God. He, he was favored as a child. He was favored in... in his master's household. He, he was favored even in the prison. And he was so favored, he was given status in Egypt to be second in command only behind the Pharaoh. And so the idea was that he had favor from God in his relationships with people. He looked out and he used his influences in positive ways. And listen, at Palmetto, we have the opportunity to do the exact same thing. We can be a church that's interested in other people, that we look out and say, hey, our mission isn't just about what God's doing in here. Ultimately, our mission is about what God is doing through us in here out there. That's where that attitude that was said of Jesus talks about not only having the attitude of Jesus, but it tells us don't look at yourself and see yourself superior. He says, consider other people better than yourself. You, you want to have influence in somebody else's life, then consider them better than you. Go out of your way to extend God's work and activity and influence in their lives. Give them your time. Give them your attention. Give them your affection, your love, your concern, your care. When we do that, you see, we extend God's interest and God's gospel to those people. What a beautiful and wonderful thing when we demonstrate that, that there's interest in someone else and that we extend the joy of God to them, the hope of God, the peace of God, the concern of God to them. There are a lot of people that, that don't extend in their Christian faith that kind of hope. Instead, they, they extend a, a sourness. They extend a saltiness. They extend an anger or frustration in these days and times. As a matter of fact, there's a lot being written about the church dealing inwardly with all of those kinds of issues, and they're all attitudinal issues. Years ago, I, I used to live in South Florida, and we lived right on the edge of the Everglades. And if you've ever been to the Everglades, you know that one of the things that the Everglades attracts is, is just thousands of migrating birds. And so ornithologists, those who study birds from all over the world, come to South Florida to watch the birds in um, the Everglades prior to crossing the uh, Gulf of Mexico. They tend to land and stop and feed and refuel and regather and then continue their migration. And so ornithologists come and came all the time to our community and our uh, little neighborhood was right there on the edge of the Everglades. So not only would birds land, but alligators would crawl out. It's a very interesting place to live. And one day I uh, encountered an ornithologist who was out there sitting on a stool watching birds with their binoculars. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm watching the vultures and the hummingbirds. 
And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's quite a contrast. He said, yeah, they, they may be the most contrasting birds in all of the world because the vultures wait till something is dead or dying. They let it rot and they pick it apart and the poison in their stomach digests it and they have one of the most polluted bodies of all of the creatures of the world. And I said, man, that sounds really ugly. He said, it's one of the most putrid things to observe. I said, well, what about the hummingbirds? He said, well, the hummingbirds are the exact opposite. They look for color and beauty and life. And with great activity, those beating wings, they fly in and they enjoy and they demonstrate such delicate natures as they eat from the flowers that they fly around and buzz around and anything that is dead or ugly or dying they avoid but everything that is beautiful and life-giving they're a part of. That conversation was very enlightening as I went back to my church and I thought, you know, I've known church members like dead vultures or dying vultures or devouring vultures and I've known church members that are like hummingbirds who want to be around life and beauty and love and hope and joy and even when loved ones die, they have this hope that is in Christ Jesus that says, for me to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord and though I may be outwardly wasting away, day by day, the real me is being renewed. And listen, where you find the contrast to that attitude is such a compelling and powerful thing. Oh, we need to recognize the importance of being interested in others and of bringing life and hope and peace to them. Palmetto should not only be interested in others, but we should invest in others. We should invest in boys and girls. We should invest in men and women. We should invest in college students and young couples and uh, newly married uh, couples. We ought to be investing in people and encouraging people as we invest in them. Because you know what? The only thing we can take to heaven are the people that God saves in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing we can take with us to heaven. Everything else is going to be left behind. But the people who know Christ will share in that heavenly eternity together. And so we ought to be investing in people. We ought to be inviting people. We ought to be inviting people to be guests of honor in the church. We ought to invite people to our small groups. We ought to invite people to our Sunday school class. We ought to invite people to the things that the church is doing, the activities and events. We ought to be inviting children to come with us to the church because that is something, again, that matters eternally. And then finally, we ought to involve people. Just like the early church absorbed 3,000 people into their church in a single day. When you get people involved in the church ministry and they begin to catch the heart and the attitude and the spirit of God within a church, oh, church, special things happen. Then our worship and our evangelism, our discipleship and our fellowship and our prayer and our stewardship and our ministry all have that special meaning because no matter what we're doing, we're doing it as unto the Lord, for the Lord. And other people see it and capture there is something different about these people. In the church in Corinth that I was talking about earlier, Paul charged the church with this very challenge. He said, what if an unbeliever comes in among you? What are they going to see? What are they going to hear? He said, my hope is that when the unbeliever comes in among you, that they will look around and see and say, surely the Lord is among you. You know, I think the reason that the New Testament or the, New, uh, the North American church is not seen what the New Testament church saw is this. 
is because the attitude of the heart isn't what the attitude of the heart sometimes needs to be to really put on display who God is and the work that God is doing. Let me close with this final story. Um, I'm afraid of heights. I, I really don't like heights. I don't know when my fear of heights kind of kicked in. I don't mind being in an airplane so much. But if, if you put me in a skyscraper or on a lookout tower or the side of a mountain where you can see a big gulch in front of you, it, it just kind of makes me kind of recoil a little bit and go, ooh. I was down in Savannah this weekend and I drove across one of the big bridges and driving across that bridge, I was like, okay, don't look to the left, don't look to the right. I mean, it's just kind of, it's irrational, I know that, but I'm like, I just don't like heights. Well, a few years ago, I was in London on the way to another country on a mission trip and I was spending a few days with some Christians in London and um, they said, hey, we're, we've arranged a special tour um, of a church building and we'd like to uh, take you on that tour. And I said, okay, let's go. Well, when they got there, it was St. Paul's Cathedral, biggest, most beautiful cathedral in all of England and one of the most beautiful in all of Europe. And as we got there, we toured through and had a behind-the-scenes tour. It's really fantastic, fascinating. It's the minister's tour that they have there. And uh, finally, the guy uh, looked at me and said, would you like to go upstairs? And I said, okay, sure. I didn't think much about it at that point. We, we climbed hundreds of stairs up to the top, and we got up there around the big dome, and we were kind of walking around the ledge of the dome, and we were looking over. And, you know, my son was like a little, mm, I'm not so sure about this. But, but I looked over, and I have to tell you, it was really impressive. He then asked me this, would you like to go outside upstairs? And I went, okay. Um, and, and so we went outside and, and we saw the city of London. We kind of shimmied around. I can't tell you how fast my heart was beating, how hard my hands were sweating. I was just kind of shimmying around out there, hundreds of feet down in front of us. And he said, would you like to go to the very tippy top? And I went, uh-huh. Uh, and, and so we climbed this little ladder. And I mean, literally just laying on the top of St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, it was quite spectacular. I'm glad I did it. If you invited me to do it today, again, I, I don't know that I'd go again. It was very awe-inspiring. When we got down to the bottom, the, the tour guide said, there's a famous story about Christopher Wren, the man that built this great cathedral who envisioned this. The story goes like this. He was walking around among the laborers, most of whom didn't know who he was, and he began to interact and talk with them. He, he asked one man, he said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm cutting stones, 10 shillings a day, trying to eke out a living. And we went to another man in another little work group, and he said, what are you doing? He said, well, I do 10-hour-a-day jobs here, pouring the cement. I went to a third man. He said, what are you doing? He said, the most spectacular work in the world. I am helping a man by the name of Sir Christopher Wren build Europe's grandest cathedral. All three common hourly workers, but one had a different attitude. He knew he was working with a master builder. He knew that he was doing something important. Can I tell you when the church in North America recaptures the idea that what we're doing is really important, that our heart needs to be fully engaged, that God wants to do a great work and we realize that we are building with the creator and master of the universe who has purchased redemption and salvation through his death upon the cross and his resurrection. And today, like yeast through the dough, he is working to accomplish his work. When the church of North America discovers again 
the mystery, the beauty, and the awe, and that becomes the attitude out of which we do what we do, and we remember both what we do and why we do it. Friends, that will be when our lives take on significance and the church begins to advance. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning today? You know, today, certainly if you're here and you don't know Christ, there needs to always be given the opportunity to respond in faith to the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, little boy, girl, man or woman, longtime church member, first day you've ever walked through the door of the church, doesn't matter. If you, you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, let me say to you that God created you and loves you. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All your best works and deeds can't save you, but Jesus Christ's death and atoning work upon the cross and his resurrection can bring about the joy and peace and hope and meaning in life that you're looking for. And if you're here today and you need to know Christ, I invite you to respond to him. But mostly for us as Christians today, today's message has been targeted at the whys behind our what. Why we worship, why we give. Is our attitude fully engaged? Is our heart fully engaged? And maybe there's some heart work that God wants to do in this room today. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. Jed and his team will come and lead us in song. If you need some spiritual help or encouragement, someone to pray for you or talk to you, I'll be here at the front. Other pastors will be there at the back. Our deacons will be scattered around the room. You can slip out and share with me during this time of song or if you want to see someone after the service is over you can certainly do that as well but here's what I encourage you to do is to let God have the opportunity to do that heart work in this holy place on this day Lord use these moments of our prayerful reflection and of our worshipful expression to do in our hearts all that you desire to do we pray one thing, Father, that the attitude of Christ would be our attitude too. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.